It's good to see everybody here tonight. We've got a smaller crowd and we need to continue to pray that the crowds will grow as this weekend uh, continues. We know that there are some journeying to this place. Let's pray that they have a safe journey if God gives us time. And uh, we're thankful to have our visitors with us here this evening. And we want you to know you're welcome at any time to be with us. Please, if you have any questions about the message tonight or the worship, please just ask. And we'll try to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. 1 Peter 3.15 We are trying to do things that please God here. We're trying to teach things that are in accordance with His will and not just have a social club. There are many things in this world that are designed to support society. But the church is designed to give glory to God. And we support society by doing that, but that's not its initial design. Its design is to glorify God. It is the beautiful bride of Christ, which gives glory to the one who purchased it by his blood. And so tonight, we're thankful that you're here, and we hope that what we have to say will be helpful to you in I in some way. Let's summarize. Tonight we're going to try to summarize all of our thoughts on change. And tomorrow night we're planning on teaching uh, a little something different. Come back and be with us tomorrow. But we're going to wrap up our thoughts that we've been t teaching on in this week. And that has been the necessity for change. We've, lo we've looked intently at Acts 17 and verse 30. Where there the Bible says God is commanding all men everywhere to repent. We've looked at that word repentance, which means to change. It's not a word, repent isn't a word we use to mean change in our common language, but repent is the word God uses to bring about change in our life. It means a change of direction and a change of loyalty. And most of all, a very real change in our behavior and priorities we're going to be looking at tonight as well. It makes a change in our worldview and our outlook, our goals. And those are something that are very important for us to change in this world. If there was no need for us for, to change, then Jesus' command in Acts 17.30 mean, is meaningless. And Jesus Christ's coming was, seems to be meaningless because God wants us to not sin any longer, not live according to the flesh, but live reflecting the fact that we were created by a creator. Our soul is imitating, is in some way similar to God. In John 4, verse 23 and 24, the Bible says God is spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Well, that's part of our nature that is similar to God. God is called in Hebrews 4, the Hebrews, excuse me, 12, the father of spirits. God is the father of our spirits. And for those who are Christians, he is the father of which we expect an inheritance, an eternal inheritance in heaven. So this week, we've been looking at the changes that it takes in order to become a Christian. Christian means follower of Jesus Christ. We've got to change those aspects of our life that Christ did not leave us an example to change. We've looked at passages such as Ephesians, the fourth chapter, right quick. We're just going to notice these. In Ephesians chapter 4, notice it says in verse 20, you did not learn Christ in this way. Notice, indeed, if you have heard of him and have been taught in him, just as the truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God and has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. 
So there's really, if you will, a description of the change that must take place. He says, we've got to put away the old self and put on the new self or lay aside the old man and live a new life in Christ Jesus. We've talked about the difference between the inner and the outer man. We've talked about the flesh and the spirit this week as well. We've talked about, we're going to talk more at length tonight, about those things above and things that are of this world as well. This is a change of perspective. And this is something that is an essential, if you will, primary foundational truth in Christianity. Those who are in Christ have a different hope. We have different priorities based on different objectives. And the Bible tells us that we're supposed to lay aside the things that are of this earth. If you'll turn to Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, right quickly. In Colossians 3, verse 1, he's talking to newborn Christians. And he there makes a conditional statement and tells us all to reflect on our baptism, if you will. Now, this is interesting. I want to show you that he's talking about baptism in just a moment. But notice what he says here in Colossians, the third chapter, verse 1. Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ. Now, I want you to look at that phrase. If you've been raised up with Christ. What's that talking about? Is it talking about someone's just decision to follow Christ as a philosophy teacher? Is it talking about somebody who's made a decision to become a disciple or a learner from Jesus Christ? No, in this passage, whenever he uses the term raised up, he's talking about baptism. If you will, look back at chapter 2, just the previous chapter, chapter 2 and verse 12. Well, let's start reading verse 11. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Now this is what he's talking about here. He says you have to be raised up with him. That's an important phrase. And he talks about that's how we get united with him in the likeness of his death. Romans 6, verse 3, uh, really starting reading verse 1 through verse 6 of Romans, the sixth chapter, it basically teaches the same thing, that we're united with Christ in the likeness of his death, burial, and resurrection in baptism. Whenever we come and we die to our old life of sin, are immersed in water and raised up to walk in newness of life. Isn't that wonderful? That's what's being talked about here. And it says this person who is trusting in God in baptism is not trusting that the water washes away anything. You know, that's something interesting about baptism before we go on. The Bible tells us it's not the element of water that is holy in baptism. There's nothing in the water. Unlike those beer commercials, there's nothing really important about the water other than it's an, it's an element that we are immersed in. So it doesn't have to be holy water that somehow the water itself is affectious in taking away sin. No, that's not it. And it's not even us in baptism. You know, the Bible doesn't... You know, it's really interesting when people begin to talk about the plan of salvation. They say, now listen, the Bible says salvation in Ephesians. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. And baptism is a work. Therefore, baptism must not be essential. But guess what? The Bible takes pains to tell us that baptism is not our work. Notice what he says right here. Again, 
Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were raised up with him through faith in the working of God. God does the working in baptism. It's not man. Whenever a man does his own believing, the Bible says, Jesus said, unless you believe I am he, you shall die in your sins, in John 6. And he tells us to do our own repenting. It's our responsibility to repent, Acts 17, 30. It's our responsibility to confess Christ, Matthew 10, 32. Whoever shall confess me before men, him will I confess before my Father which is in heaven. But when it comes to baptism, you have to submit to somebody else. If baptism is a work, it's somebody else's work. And, that, and we have to submit. We are most passive in baptism. But the Bible says the person doing the work in baptism is God. It says through faith in the working of God. God is the one who washes away sin. In 1 Peter 3 and verse 21, the Bible says that baptism is not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but an appeal of a good conscience toward God. It's not, it's not, not in the water. It's obeying God. It's where we meet God, and God meets us with salvation. Titus 2 and 11 says, The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared unto all men. It's appeared to everybody. Then why isn't everybody saved? Because not everybody receives the gift. That's right. Not, nobody can earn, the, earn it. Nobody can purchase it. The gift is offered to everyone. But everyone has to receive a gift. A gift unreceived is not enjoyed. If I say, your birthday, your birthday car is over at my house, Frank, and all you have to do is come get it, you say, well, thank you, Glenn, and you never come get it for a month or two, I'm going to call you up and say, why haven't you come and picked up your car? Oh, I know it's there. Thanks very much. And I say, but you're never going to enjoy it if you don't come get it. And that's what God says to man. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. No, the doctrine of predestination, where God only elects some people to be saved and some people to be lost, is not true. Jesus said it's offered to all. Jesus tasted death for every man. God loves the whole world. 1 Timothy 2, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God wants everybody to be saved, and it's offered to all, but not everybody receives the gift. Well, Glenn, how do I receive the gift? Ah, how do you receive the gift? In your faith, you repent of your sins, you confess his name before men, and you're baptized for the remission of your sins, Acts 2.38. That's how you receive the gift. You obey the Lord. And whenever you obey the Lord in baptism, you are raised up to walk with him. Now let's go back, if you will, to Colossians, Colossians chapter 3, and let's begin, let's talk about what we do right after we've been raised up with Christ. Colossians 3 verse 1, Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, like I said, that's an allusion to baptism, chapter 2, verse 12. He says, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, not the things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. He says here, not the things that are of the earth, and he it, it uses the word world, we're going to notice in 1 John 2 in just a moment. These are similar, or, or uh, if you will, synonym ideas. They're parallel metaphors. God says if we've been saved, if we have been baptized, that symbolizes a death to an old life and a resurrection to a life that has a new direction, a new objective. Things that are set above, not the things that are on the earth. 
We have another objective. We have another goal, another journey. We are headed in a different direction than people in this world are headed in. Is all your life's objectives, are they worldly goals? Are all the things you want to accomplish or acquire or all the things that you want to do with your life of a worldly nature? Are they have worldly accolades or worldly rewards? Or do we have the, our life set toward those things that are above? Are we laying up treasures in heaven or treasures on earth? This is a primary change of objective for those who are in Christ. This is a primary change. Those who are Christians aren't looking for the, all of their rewards in this world. In fact, God tells us that if we try to live godly in Christ Jesus, we will suffer persecution here. And throughout history, this has been the case. We live in an unusual time in history where Christians have the freedom to speak their mind, where Christians don't have, we don't have any fear right here and right now of our faith. And there are some brethren in foreign lands that do. I'll guarantee you some of our brethren in the South Philippines are scared for their life. And I just talked to Doug Edwards, not, who got back from India. He's been over there uh, setting up uh, some churches in, in um, eastern India. And some of their preachers and some of their members get beat up for confessing Christ to Hindus. They get beat up. Now, this isn't just a nice story. It's nice to read about. It's something that has, happens a long time ago. This happened just in the last few months. I want you to think about that. Do you really have a fear of when you're inviting someone to church that somebody's going to say, well, you're, well, I'm going to beat you up for that? And not only that, the laws of the land are set up not, not to benefit you. In fact, you can be arrested by the law of the land for trying to evangelize a Hindu. The laws of the land. You can be put in prison justly for confessing Christ or carrying a Bible to somebody who you didn't know didn't want it. Now that's what I'm talking about. We're talking about real persecution really today. But some people preach what we call the health and wealth Christianity, and that is if you're living right, everything should be rosy, and, and all you have to do is just open your mailbox and money pours out. My friends, God told us that we are not supposed to look to this world for our reward. He tells us to set our sights and set our affections on things above, not on things of this world. So this is a primary shift because often where our heart is, where our treasure is, there will our heart be also where our treasure is. So we've got to shift our treasure from one of an earthly nature to one of an eternal nature from a temporal to an eternal shift in priorities. We really must, because that is so key to living a successful Christian life. Because what happens if you're like the brethren in Africa? What happens if you're like the brethren in India who are not physically blessed? Is your God cursing you in some way? Are you cursed because you're not wealthy? No, God never promised us earthly wealth. He promised us heavenly wealth. He promised us eternal reward, not a temporal reward. The Bible takes pains to tell us not to lay up treasures on earth where moth, where moth, not moss, where moth can corrupt it, where thieves can break in and steal, but to lay up treasures in heaven. And so the Bible tells us to redirect 
our ambitions. Our ambitions to spiritual ambitions. Please turn to 1 John, the second chapter, right quick. I want you to know that this is a real priority of the heart here, he tells us, and he uses some terms here in 1 John that, are, that I think are real practical in telling us how to make this heart shift. 1 John uses the word love often. In fact, the word love is used in 1 John 26 times. He uses the word love. And we know what the word love carries with it, the baggage this world has, uh, word has with it. The word love implies commitment. The word in love implies emotional attachment. The word love implies a willingness to sacrifice for the good of the object love. In other words, we, want to, we love someone, we want to sacrifice for their welfare. Philippians 2, 3 through 5. That's what the word love entails. And God uses the word here to talk about our priorities. Notice what he says. Well, I just want to show you how the word is used. And my friend, John uses it positively many times throughout the book. Look at chapter 3, verse 11. The, this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was the evil one, and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Okay, he didn't love, and because of that, envy crept in and caused him to kill his brother. Notice he says in verse 13, Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. Right there, verse 13, 1 John chapter 3. So we know that we have passed out of death and life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Oh, that love is important here. And the apostle, it, excuse me, John is making it very, very clear here that who we love and how we love are so vitally, vitally important and how we can't hate anyone because if we hate, it's evidence of a lack of fellowship with God. Notice verse 16, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Well, this is talking about a real change, isn't it? Yeah, we've got to love the brethren and he teaches this over and over and again all the way through this passage. One of the things he says here, <coughs> toward the end of this book, <clears throat> is that we're not to love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Um, well, all the way through, yeah, verse 18, excuse me, chapter 3, verse 18. Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. Verse 7 of chapter 4, brethren, let us love one another, for love is in God. You see, he knows how to use this word. But then there's a few times in this book that he uses it negatively. That is, that we're not supposed to love. He often says, love, I want you to learn how to love. I want you to love like Jesus loved. And then he says, oh, and I want to tell you, there's something that I don't want you to love as well. Notice, if you will, in 1 John chapter 2, we're going to start reading with verse 15. Notice what he says right off the bat. Do not love the world. <laughs> this is something he says, I want you, you know how to love. And here's something I don't want you to love. I don't want you to love the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Whoa, this is pretty basic. It evidently reflects salvation. He tells us this is such an, of a great priority that if you can't change your heart here, it's an evidence that you don't know God. 
Now that's pretty, that's pretty impressive. It's a real test. Notice, for all that is in the world, verse 16, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is up from the world, and the world is passing away, and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Well, what all does this mean? What, how can I know that I don't love the world? I don't want to love the world after reading that. He tells me specifically, I must not love the world. In other words, I've got to put this out of my life and make sure that I love those things that are above, love the proper things. How can I make sure? Well, let's study the word world for just a moment tonight and see if we can get a real handle on this because this is so vitally, vitally important. The word world is used basically three ways in the scriptures, the word world. It's talking about three ideas. Now, we know how words can be used as figures of speech. There are words that are used in our culture that, that uh, don't, don't survive, if you will, a literal definition of their terminology. I remember back in the 60s, people used to say, well, that's really cool, you know? And we don't do that anymore. We, our kids, whenever we say, oh, that's really cool, our kids go, man, that, you're showing your age. You're showing your age, you know? That's not anything. And then I remember when listening to my kids, and they said, man, that's really bad. That's really bad. And I, what does that mean? And that meant good. I finally figured that out. Something bad was good. That's really bad. And then the, for a little while, they used the word, that's really fat. And that was good. That was good. I still use that word that way. But anyway, the whole point is, is that what's what we're talking about is that words can have different meanings in the scriptures. Well, the word world has that same kind of thing. The word world can apply to many, many different things. The one, one thing that we all expect is that the word, word world sometimes is used in reference to the cosmos, and that is in reference to the planets, in reference to the sphere, the material sphere upon which we live. Let's, let's look at some of the passages. Notice the Bible says <coughs> in Acts 17 and verse thir uh, 24, Excuse me. Acts 17, verse 24. God, it says, The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Well, here in this verse, the word world and all things in it is talking about the literal dirt planet. He's talking about this sphere. And he says, God made the world and everything in it. He's talking about created things. And he says, God made this word, the, the world. Now, in Romans 1 and verse 20, it's used this way and verse well, contextually. In Romans 1, verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Here he's talking about the created world as well. And he says this world is just the material world, the dirt, the planet itself. John is, says this, uh, this is, uh, excuse me, in these passages, the Bible is just talking about the material world. That matter, if you will. And notice he says, that's something that God made. And after he looked on all that he had made, he said, it was good. But this can't be what John is talking about. In 1 John 2, when he says, love not the world, 
It's not, it's not a sin to enjoy this world in, in this way. In the book, in Acts 17, verse 24, the Bible says God is Lord of heaven and earth. There's nothing immoral or inconsistent with God's creation and with his nature. God appreciated everything that he had made and called it good in this world. God doesn't say, in order for us to live here, we as Christians have got to hate existing. I want to get that really plain. Because the Gnostics at the time of Christ taught that very doctrine. And the book of Colossians was written to refute it. In other words, he, they, they were teaching that God is all spirit and world is all evil, is all carnal. And they could not coexist. That's why they denied that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, because they could not believe that a spirit God would combine with this world. The world was evil, spirit is all good, and therefore we should deny the flesh. We should all uh, inflict pain on the flesh, and that somehow it showed spiritual superiority. And Paul speaks, he says, the severe treatment of the body is a false religion. He says it really is. And there's people who still believe that today, that you ought to be a hermit. You ought to deny this flesh and deny that God made anything pleasurable. As one writer said in history, a famous one, by the way, he said he believed God created everything from the waist up and the devil everything from the waist down. Well, that's not, that's not God looked at everything he made and said it was good. So man has taken worldly things and used them to create lust. Lust is unlawful desire. But the desires that we have in this world are not inherently evil. God looked on his creation and said it was good. So don't fall into the Gnostic trap. Don't fall into that trap of thinking this world does not reflect God. The Bible says it does, Romans 1. This world reflects God. Well, the, hating this world will lead people to, to commit suicide and, and, and leads people to drink Kool-Aid and Guyana and all kinds of things. The Bible doesn't say that is the sign of his followers. No, there is a form of, of the love of this world that we're going to get to in a minute that the Bible says is wrong. But God doesn't say, I want you to hate material existence. But there's a second way in the word, the word uh, world is used in the scriptures and that is in a more symbolic sense. It refers to mankind in general. By naming the planet, in other words, it's metonymy. He names the planet to, to uh, 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 if you will, suggest its inhabitants. John 3.16, one of the verses that everybody knows in the scriptures. God so loved the world. Well, it would be wrong to interpret that planet. Uh, excuse me, I got ahead of myself. It would be wrong to interpret that statement that God loved the dirt of this world, that God loved the dirt only and, uh, you know, people he just kind of tolerates. There's some people that, that practice the worship of nature and they literally teach that the world would be better off if all the people were dead off of it, that we're one of the biggest environmental hazards in the, in the history. There, I know some tree huggers, guys. I grew up in Oregon. But the whole fact of the matter is is that's not what this passage is teaching. When it says God so loved the world, it's really not suggesting anything about the planet. He's talking by metonymy about you and I as inhabitants, as inhabitants of this world. He's naming the planet or the earth 
to suggest the people on the earth. When God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Notice the scriptures on this, if you will. In John 1, in verse 10, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, in verse 10, the Bible says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Now, it seems to suggest that it, it gives the dirt a suggestion of intellectual knowledge or ability to know something. No, no, no. We know that the dirt doesn't have that kind of memory. He's talking about people. He's saying the people didn't know him in that sense. In John 1 and verse 29, go on down a few verses to verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I didn't know that the planet could commit a sin. The Bible says in John, the first chapter, that lust precedes sin, and sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. You mean the planet can lust? No, my friends. Everything in this world obeys God's design, except for man. Whenever an animal does what it does, it's not lusting. When a, when a lion kills an antelope, it does, it's not a moral issue. You don't find lions with ulcers over worrying about the antelope's family. You don't find them going, oh my, what have I done? No, they kill because it's God's design. The, everything else in the world, every other creation of God does what it does by design. Man is the one who has guilt. We're the one who could commit moral and ethical sin, not this planet and not even animals in this planet. Therefore, whenever it's saying takes away the sins of the world, He's talking about us by metonymy. He's talking about us, you and I. And so he's not talking about this planet. He's talking about mankind in general. Notice there are many other passages mm, uh, that we could go, talk about tonight, but we're not going to have time to get to all of them. Let's get to the, what 1 John 2 is really talking about. In 1 John, the second chapter, whenever he says, love not the world nor the things in the world, the word world is used in the sense of sin. If you have your Bibles, please open to Galatians chapter 6. In Galatians chapter 6, right quick, notice what he says here in verse 14. May it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Now, what's he talking about here? He, he wasn't literally talking about this world or else Paul couldn't write what he wrote. He would be dead. Whenever he used the word crucified here and used the word world, he's talking about choices and decisions and priorities. And he's saying there's a certain sphere that I have, no I have died to, that I no longer live in in any sense. This is the type of the world that the Bible tells us not to love. It is talking about a world of sin and unrighteousness. It's talking about that which is alien to God. It's talking about something that God didn't create that had dirt in it. It's talking about that which man engages in, a world or an atmosphere or, if you will, a culture of sin. Notice some other passages. In James, the first chapter, in verse 27, the word is used this way. In James 1, in verse 27, the Bible says, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress 
and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Now, mothers, you should not use this passage to tell your children not to get dirty because that's not what he's talking about. It is misusing the scriptures to apply it so literally. He is using here the symbol of the world to suggest the sphere of sin. And he says to keep oneself unstained from the world means to keep oneself out of the culture of sin, out of the sphere of sin. So it is in this way that the world is used here in 1 John chapter 2. If any man comes to God, he must not love the world of sin. He's not talking about loving your coffee. He's not talking about loving a sunset. He's not talking about loving your beautiful wife or beautiful husband or horse or anything else or your flowers or your roses. Some people say, well, it's a sin to love anything in this world. That is not what 1 John 2 is saying. He's saying, don't you love sin? Christians have to hate sin. In fact, the Bible says it in very explicit terms like that. To love God is to hate sin and evil and the wicked way. That is the attitudes, that is the kind of love we're supposed to give up. If you will, Romans 12 and verse 9. To love God is to abhor evil and to love what is good. We've got to abhor evil. We've got to have an attitude change about evil. <clears throat> Let's look at a few other passages. <clears throat> In James 4 and verse 4, just go over a few verses. James chapter 4 and verse 4. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world, there's that word world again, friendship is the world, is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Does that mean we're not supposed to love the environment? That we're not supposed to love other people who are in this world that are of a temporal nature? Once again, no, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about loving sin, loving unrighteousness, loving wickedness, desiring wickedness, wanting wickedness. He says if you want to be a friend with the world, that is the sinful world, then you cannot be a friend of God. You can't love God and sin at the same time. You've got to put one of them to death in your life. Notice, in Matthew, the sixth chapter, in verse 24, this concept is put just in a little bit different terminology. Matthew 6 and verse 24. <clears throat> no man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth, or mammon is what the King James says. You can't serve both of these things. Well, who is your Lord? Who is your God? Who do you try to be friends with? Here's, if I'm going to sum up what I'm trying to say tonight is, there's a lot of people in this world having a loving, have a love affair with sin. And they want a love affair with sin, but they want the benefits of the covenant with God. They want heaven after all this world is over. They want to be married to God, but God says, listen, in order to remain married to me, you've got to be faithful. You've got to say, forsaking all others, I will keep myself only unto him. But we want to carry on a love affair after we're married to God. We want to love the world and the things in the world. We want to sin. We want the pleasure of sin. 
Would your wife tolerate that? Would your husband tolerate that? Well, no, and God doesn't either. He says the church is the bride of Christ in the book of Revelation. And he doesn't want his church to have a love affair with the world. We've got to break up. We've got to break up dating the world. We've got to break up our relationship with the world. We can't be married to Christ and still carry on a love affair with the world. We can't do it. Now, if, we, if that makes sense to us in this world, can't we understand that spiritually that makes sense? Spiritually that makes sense. That's what the Bible says. You've got to forsake your love affair with the world. You've got to break up with the world in order to have a great relationship with your husband, Christ. He's the one that loves the church. He died for the church, Ephesians 5 tells us. Christ loved the church so much he died for her. He paid a price for her. And we need to be committed and devoted back to him. So we've got to get out of loving the world. No man can serve two masters. And my friends, you can't love the world and love God too. Sin is this world of darkness that we've got to get out of our hearts. We've got to change our priorities. We've got to change our loves. In Colossians, the first chapter, in verse 13, the Bible says it this way. He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son. The domain of darkness is the world of 1 John 2. In him is the light, but God is of the light, and in him there is no darkness. 1 John 1 and verse 5. We cannot love both God and sin. So, do you love sins? Is there any sin in your life that you're in love with? The Bible says to put it out of our life. We have got to no longer love the world. This is that change, change of heart change of priorities that we've been talking about. Let's look at 1 John 2 very, very quickly, and then we'll bring our lesson to a close tonight. In 1 John 2, he names, he names this, these things. And contextually, I believe the question is answered. But let's go to 1 John 2, verse 15 and 16 again. Look at it really carefully as we read it together. 1 John 2, verse 15. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world, if anyone loves the Father, the, excuse me, loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, now he's going to tell us what's in this world that we're not supposed to love. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father. Well, he can't be talking about this planet because it is of the Father. But he says sin is not of the Father. This planet is. Sin is not. Sin is created whenever we choose to satisfy a God-given desire in an ungodly way. That's what lust is. It's to satisfy a God-given desire in an ungodly way. It is not of the Father, but is from the world. Now, we've got to change that. The lust of the flesh is a, it's talking about the things, the, the way the world satisfies its desires. We have got to put these things out of our life. Take every, first, Second Corinthians 10 and verse 5, as we reviewed last night, the Bible says we've got to take every thought captive and bring it to obedience to Christ. And I've got to hush. I've got two more pages of notes, but I can't get to them tonight. <laughs> I've got to hush. Uh, 
I do want to leave you with one last illustration right quick. Listen very carefully. Hernando Cortez, whenever he sailed over here to conquer, if you will, America and Mexico and all of that area, whenever he landed here, he had 11 ships and 700 men. And he landed at Veracruz in the spring of 1519. And you know what he did whenever he landed there? He did something that caused a certain kind of motivation in his men. He unloaded the ships, then he burned them. He burned the ships. Isn't that amazing? Why would a guy do that? Well, you know, if you're in a new place and you get into trouble, there's always that sense, well, well you know, if this gets too rough, I can just pack up and go home. I can just load up, leave. Load up and leave. But he wanted a kind of commitment out of his men where they knew there wasn't any going back. And he says, when we get back, we're going to have to build ships to go back. <laughs> we're not, that's what he, he wanted some commitment out of it. You know what? I'll tell you what, that if I was a soldier on that ship, it would give me some commitment to succeed, wouldn't it? I wouldn't be wanting to say, well, you know, we got two options here. We can fight these guys or we can get in the ship and leave. Oh, that's right. The ship has been burned. I guess we only have one option. We got to fight these guys and we got to win. Right? Well, Christians, that's what we've been talking about here tonight. How many of us want to go to heaven, but we not broke up with the world yet? It's time we burn some bridges. It's time we burn some ships. It's time we took stock of our heart and realized that a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways, James 1 and verse 8. You are not going to live a successful, victorious Christian life as long as you have two hearts, as long as you have two ambitions, two goals, and two sets of priorities. You may have one set of priority that works some of the time and the other side of the... But you are going to be unsuccessful at both. You're going to be a miserable sinner and a miserable Christian as long as you have two hearts in this world. If you want to be successful, you're going to have to purify your hearts. And James, 1, James excuse me, 4, 8 tells us, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Purify. The word purify means make single something that was double contextually. Make single. Make of single substance. Purify your hearts. In other words, make one out of two. You've got to get rid of one. Whenever we come to Christ, we've got to give up our love of sin. Oh, but Glenn, I don't love sin. Really? No, you just want to cheat on God. We want the pleasure of sin. We don't want a relationship. We want what God has to offer. We want the inheritance. We want the Father's house when we go to heaven. But we want a little something on the side. We want sin in our life still. And as long as that happens, James 1.8 says, we will be unstable in all our ways. There's a reason why Christians aren't successful. It's because they're not broken up with the world. You've got to break up. You've got to break up. You've got to tell Christ, I'm going to be faithful to you. I'm going to be committed to you. I'm going to be respectful of you. I'm going to honor you. I will forsake all others and cling only to you because we are the bride of Jesus Christ. So it's time we burn some ships. It's time we take every thought captive. 
It's time we set our eyes on things above, not the things that are on this world. And if there's ever going to be a compromise, my friends, with things in this world, we've got to make sure that we remain faithful to God and our call to follow Him in all and every situation. I hope this has been helpful. Like I said, I didn't get to everything I wanted to say tonight, but be thankful for that. So tonight, I just want to, I just want to challenge all of us in summarizing what we... This is kind of what we've been talking about all week. A lot of times we talk about this all week and people go, yeah, yeah, but that's hard and that's difficult. But tonight, we just wanted to really focus that it is essential that we love not the world. It's essential that we break up because we won't be successful if we don't. That's why we are unstable. It's because we've not purified our heart. Do you want to go to heaven tonight? Then what in this world is worth leaving in your life that's sin? There is no sin worth exchanging heaven for. Get rid of desire to sin. Don't let your heart envy sinners like we talked about last night. Don't desire things that are in this world. Set your heart on things above, not the things that are on the earth, for your life is hidden with Christ and God. If you then be raised up with Christ, set your mind on things above. So tonight, rearrange your priorities. Rearrange your life. If there's any compromise between your job and following Christ, who's going to suffer? If there's any compromise that has to be called for, what's going to go? God's got to come first. God's got to come first. So tonight, are you willing to be purifying your heart and your mind? Are you willing to give up, forsake all others? Are you willing to make yourself pure and only for God? Tonight, that's what it takes for. Before you answer question yes in marriage, you have to think about those things, don't you? Don't you? Before you have to you say, now I've got to, if I love dating... I've got to ask myself, do I want to stop dating? You know? Some girls and guys, they don't want to stop dating when they get married. That's really bad. But we know when we get married, what we say is, you're it. You're the only one I'm going to be looking to. This is the only relationship I'm going to have in this world, in marriage. Whenever it comes to God, we've got to love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it's costly. It means forsaking all others. But my friends, oh, the joy that comes from having a pure and wonderful relationship with God tonight. You will not have any more wonderful relationship than the one you will have if you will give up your love of the world. There is no sin worth exchanging heaven for. I don't care what sin you've got in your life. You might be saying, I'd like to be a Christian, but Glenn, I love this sin too much to give up. Is it really worth your soul? Is it really worth eternity? My friends, God loves you. Jesus died for you. And he is calling for you. With all the, everything that he can, God gave you evidence that he loves you. So he wants you to go to heaven. He wants you to be saved. The grace of God is extended, but you've got to make the choice. God's not going to force you to marry him. You've got to say yes. So in your faith, repent of your sins tonight. Forsake all others. Confess your name before men. Confess his, excuse me, his name before men, Matthew 10, 32, and allow yourself to be submerged in water and have your sins washed away like Paul. Acts 22, 16, arise, be baptized, and wash away your sins. Tonight, won't you have your sins washed away, Acts 22, 16, like Paul? You can tonight. You can, if you will. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. 
If you would like any additional information, or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.